Hello, friends, and welcome to another Robcast. This one is a cooker. Oh, man. Suad McKennett stopped by the back house uh, a couple days ago. And um, Suad's a journalist from Germany who uh, I first heard about her because of her interviews with leaders of ISIS and Al-Qaeda. She has a new book out, which we'll be talking about. So as usual, uh, I had hundreds of questions for her, but um, I think, oh man, uh, if, if this interview does anything to you like it did to me, whoa. Um, but before we get to the interview, a couple things real quickly. My next Largo show is next week, October 4, and uh, if you're anywhere near Los Angeles, um, Largo shows are just, they're just, I don't know what the word is. It's an amazing place. And I'll be talking about the soul and curiosity and risk and all sorts of new things. And then um, I've been doing these two days over the past six years. And uh, a number of you have said, you should do a two day somewhere like not, basically not Los Angeles. You should do somewhere on the East Coast or the South. So two day Nashville is coming your way. Um, and that will be in November 13th and 14th. And uh, all that info is at robbell.com. We'll hang out for two days. I have all sorts of new things to, what's the word? Unleash, unveil, fire hose you with. Um, and then the Something to Say workshops, uh, there's a one in October and one in November, and these are for communicators. So messages, speeches, paragraphs, writing, mess uh, sermons, talks, um, Whatever it is that you do, trying to put thoughts, stories, ideas, concepts, and put it into language and form and then deliver it, give it to somebody. Um, I love talking about this, and I love it when people are working on something and we can dive into it and get you unstuck and get you going and get you some tools. So um, these workshops are like hands-on. I'll be giving you exercises, and we'll be, getting, we'll be working on your things. And actually, kind of think of it looking at my computer here. Um, I have things I'm working on, which I'll uh, show you where I'm at, and uh, you know we'll see where it goes from there. So, and these are like serious workshops. I want to help you go pro, as they say. <laughs> so, there was an October workshop that filled up, but then a couple of spots just opened, and then there's a November one, and we're doing them at the Improv here um, in the neighborhood. But um, there's a couple of spots that just opened for October, and then November has a couple of spots available, and would love to see you at all of those things. And then the audio is uh, now out, and it's seven hours and 45 minutes of me giving you my best content on the art of communicating. And you can get all that, uh, all that and more at robbell.com. So there's a few things going on, um, and I'll look forward to seeing you, some of you at those events. But now I get to introduce you to my new friend, Suad McKinnett. All right, my friends, welcome to another episode of the Robcast. And this one uh, is such an honor. Suad McKinnett, I said that right? Yes, you did. Um, I love saying your name, by the way. Thank you. Suad McKinnett um, is with me. And it's such an honor that you're here in the back house. I call this the back house. It's my pleasure to be here, Rob. It's... Um, and Suad is a correspondent with the Washington Post. You've been with the New York Times. Um, how do you pronounce the German paper? D-E-R-S-P... Der Spiegel. Der Spiegel. 
Yeah, long um, time ago. <laughs> but you have written with for all sorts of publications over the years. Yes, but mainly the the Washington Post and the New York Times. Yeah. It is such an honor to have you here. I've just finished your book, um, and everybody, her book is called "I Was Told to Come Alone: My Journey Behind the Lines of Jihad." And this book, I like devour books, but this book affected me so deeply. Wow. Um, I started making a list of things I wanted to ask you about. And when I hit my second and then my third page <laughs> of things, I, I should warn her this interview could be hours. But I will try to get to be as succinct <laughs> as possible. Okay. Um, and I, um, having met you and then read your book, I just kept thinking my Robcast friends will just love you and find what you have to say so profound. So here's what I want to do. I want to start, um, I don't want to give away the whole book, mm -hmm. because I started thinking about things I wanted to ask you about and realized, if I keep going with this, I will will end up reading the whole book <laughs> in this interview. Okay. Um, but to my, to my listeners, to my friends, Suad has conducted an untold number of interviews and written so many articles um, with firsthand interviews with the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and for many in the Western world, she has you've sort of broken all sorts of new ground mm. in helping us understand the world we're living in and some of these forces that are, for many people, just headlines. Yeah. Um, so let's go to your meeting. Let's go, it's right here in page, I think it's page 105. Um, your meeting with, is it Absi? Ah, Shakal Absi. In. Shakal Absi. So many of these names, I was like, I wish there was like a little phonetic button I could push. <laughs> You're in Lebanon yeah. meeting with one of the leaders of Al-Qaeda. Yes. And you go into his compound. There's guards everywhere. Yeah. Um, you're surrounded by men with machine guns, and you are interviewing this Al-Qaeda leader. And as the reader, I'm nervous reading this even though I know that you make it out okay. Well, I'm glad you're nervous because it, it shows that I told the story the right way because I was also nervous. And I was also interested in how many of the interviews that you get with ISIS leaders and Al-Qaeda leaders, we, you give us what it's like to essentially not negotiate, but with your editors mm -hmm. in Washington, they're sort of, they're nervous yeah. about letting you do this. Yeah, it's a, you know, so there were two meetings with APSI. There was a tea meeting that invite, I invited myself into having tea with him because I, he didn't want to give me the interview at the beginning and um, he didn't want to talk to media. Uh, he, was, he was actually one of Abu Musab al-Zarqawi's um, close, closest aides um, and they were trying to set up a new kind of camp and group in Lebanon using... Um, Palestinian camps in Lebanon as you know one of their re recruiting grounds but also where they where they trained people and so when we wanted to do the story about him and about his group uh, nobody knew about them actually so I went to I invited myself for tea he agreed to meet with me but he said you have to come alone your colleague cannot come my American colleague back back then from the New York Times and um, and then the tea meeting turned out to be an interrogation. Um, they interrogated me and it was unexpected. 
So yes, there were there were guns also pointed at me, and uh, then Apsi and his deputies started asking me all those those questions. Um, before I uh, I went to the team meeting, I had also conversations, as you just mentioned, Rob, with my editors who were like. Um, wait a second, what are you really planning to do? And I walked him through um, what, my, what, why I believed or we believed it was important to do this meeting. But everything turned out totally different, right? It wasn't just tea, it was like an interrogation. But I was the one who was questioned. And um, so when you tell me that you got nervous reading this, I was nervous too. So yeah. it, it, it's really... Um, it was really a very difficult moment for me because I understood I knew that if I would answer a question the way that they would think I am a spy or I'm not just a journalist or something, I my life could have ended just there. And right. Then. And this is, I wanted to start with this meeting because you're surrounded by men with machine guns. You know that one wrong answer, these people have a fairly long history of killing people and journalists yeah and one of them the deputy turns to you and says tell me sister Suad, are you married yeah, yeah. and you respond why are you looking for a second wife <laughs> i asked him yeah. it's true. <laughs> all the men except him started laughing even the one who had been pointing a gun at me yeah i feel like this there's a lot of moments in the book where we think you might die, although we know you wrote the book, so somehow you live. But yeah. we're sucked into this thinking, Suad's going to die here. But then you do something, and everybody ends up laughing. Yes. I Look, here's the reason why I asked him this question. Um, throughout my career, I came... I had, very, I had a couple of moments where people would ask me exactly the question, are you married? And when, you know, I'm still not married, and when I say, no, I'm not married, um, they would ask, um, would you be interested in becoming a second wife? So in this situation, serious, I, I really thought, okay, now he's going to ask me again, like all the others, are you interested in having a second wife? So that's why I basically thought, hey, let me just, you know, answer this question by ans asking him back. Now, in this particular case, they all... I didn't understand why are they laughing until it turned out that the deputy was actually also the son-in-law of the boss of the group. Yes. <laughs> yes. And then you explain that. <laughs> Which, um, yeah, was a little, um, how can I say this? It was one of those moments where I felt, okay, I think I should get out of here because this is awkward. Like, the you know, the boss... Apsi yeah. turning to the deputy and saying, I don't know if my daughter would agree that you would take on a second wife so fast, right? So that's why they were all laughing because it was, um, and I think really that this, this moment that the, 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 you know, because I made them laugh was one of the reasons why they agreed later on to give me the interview. Yeah, this, there are a number of these moments in the book. There's a, page 174 you're in Egypt yeah there's a riot see even now I say you're in Egypt because it's it, a riot and your car is surrounded and they want to kill you and I start mentioning that and you're smiling now actually I was thinking about a say <laughs> other situation in Egypt in the prison but oh I'm getting to that that's oh, yeah, my next question that. oh I'm sorry um, your car is surrounded by people yeah. your driver has said there's no way out 
Um, they're pounding on your car. People have knives. The crowd outside our car was growing angrier. Um, and then you open the door of mm -hmm. the car and you start screaming at the crowd in Arabic. What's wrong with you people? What is it you want? You want the pictures? The Egyptians seem to be in shock. Yeah. So there's a full-blown riot. They've surrounded your car. They want to kill everybody in the car. You open the door and get out and confront the crowd. Yes. Because, Rob, this was a moment where... So we were stuck in a car. I was stuck in a car with the German TV crew. And they had filmed people and this upset people from the crowd. And they wanted the pictures they wanted the the the, the card uh, from the camera and um but what happened was i saw that left and right people were trying to uh you know they had swords they had knives and i and they were hammering against the window and you know i have been through training um for reporters or people who work in war zones in crisis zones and i knew that once one of these windows is you know breaks that's it the crowd is gonna just lynch us lynch us like we would die so and I, i knew we had to do something in order to um get the crowd away from the windows from the cars and give the the, the driver a chance to get the key back because somebody had taken the key from yeah. him and this was the only thing i could do i was thinking you know if um they don't they didn't know that i spoke arabic i think they thought i was a person of Pakistani descent or of Indian descent because of the way I look. Um, and so it was a shocking moment for them. And um, it was just really a reflex. I understood you have to do something because as soon as the window breaks, that's it. They're going to kill us. So, And that's why I decided to get out of the car. I asked the cameraman to give me this SIM card and then I went out and I threw the SIM card out there and just said, there take it and um screamed at them yes um when they make a movie about your life this scene is gonna be my favorite scene <laughs> <laughs> well i mean <laughs> we're not there yet rob but hopefully maybe that you know let's let's say from your world from your mouth to god's ears <laughs> from okay. my mouth to god's ears yeah. now uh There's a moment in the book when you tell about being in, in the Egyptian prison. Yeah. You can hear other people who are being detained being tortured. Mm -hmm. You can hear screams. Um, you begin to reflect on the fact... It's, it's like you take us through what it's like to face, I could die. Yeah. I'm probably going to die. And you say, I began to hear my inner voice. It was time to say goodbye to this world. Um. This was the L. This was the end. I felt oddly placid. Um, I saw moments from my childhood and with friends and family playing in front of me like scenes from a movie. Um, mm. It's true. How? What? You, what? I guess I can. I can see what year that was. How do you work? And then you you get out. 2011. And it was January 2011. How does a I mean, you've been in a number of war zones. There's a m number of passages where you talk about hit squads, death threats, um, people want you dead. How did you, did you have a, I kept thinking, did she have a therapist? Did she have a support group? <laughs> no. Did she have friends she had tea with for days on end afterwards? Like this, this particular s moment. Yeah. Um, did you just go right back to work? How did, how did you learn to process the trauma of these experiences? 
So this particular, um, you know, those events in Egypt, uh, they took some time for me to process. And I knew that. I knew it would take time. Um, I knew that I would wake up in the middle of the night um, with nightmares mm -hmm. because a lot happened before we ended up in this car, actually. Yeah. Also, I was threatened with, you know, getting raped. and Right. Blindfolded, um, you talk blindfolded about? Blindfolded as well. Um, uh, different in other interrogations, not knowing where you are. But so when I when we got out of Egypt, I understood this really would affect me because um, it was... Uh, I was worried until even the flight took off that they would try to to, to re-arrest me, um, the intelligence service. But um, so what happened was after uh, getting to, to, to Germany, I spoke to somebody who was um, specialized in trauma over the phone and I asked him, I said to him, how many weeks is normal? How many weeks do I have to go through waking up in the middle of the night and, and so on and and he's told me four to five and if it takes longer we'll, we should talk again mm -hmm. um, he advised me to go away um, from also family and friends and to just take some time off to process and maybe to find a space where I could also cry basically which uh, I didn't want to so the thing is I didn't want my family like my my friends who, who came and who were worried to really um, uh, uh, deal with, you know, me being so deeply traumatized and I, I needed to go through, through a process of um, allowing myself to also, um, you know, be weak. And mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. which is not a weakness. I think actually weak is the wrong word. I think allow myself to, to, to process what I have lived through and right. witnessed. So that's why I went to Morocco and I went to, um, you know, there's a little, there's a mountain. Um, it's uh, 45 minutes outside of Marrakesh, a little low budget hotel where um, I ride on a mule and get up on this, you know, the, the, the mountain and there's this little hotel. It's very basic. And I just spent a couple of days there and had from, you know, to myself, I, uh, the people who worked there, they know me for many years, but they kind of like saw, oh God, something is wrong with her. And they just let me be and alone. I had my minty and I looked up uh, and, you know, I looked at mm -hmm. the sky and, um, uh, but I would also cry and I allowed it to happen because I needed, I needed to really process all this. And it wasn't only what happened in Egypt. It, uh, you know, I went through a, a lot of different other situations I have been through. Now, I broke that circle. Um, also, uh, I'm sure you saw that when I switched my Kindle back on. And, um, and mm -hmm. I realized that the people from the intelligence service had <laughs> gone through a book that I had just started, you know, reading actually when they arrested me and I started laughing because they, 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 I start when I gave them the Kindle, I was on page 15 or 16. And when I switched the Kindle on again, it was on 211 or 12 or whatever. You have to tell people at the end. It. And the no, title. It, you could, yeah. You might as well you just give it away. It's such a great moment in the book, <laughs> but you might as well give it away. <laughs> No, actually, it was a, you know, look, I'm a single woman and actually one of my friends, um, girlfriends, advised me to read this book um, and she, she sent it to me as a gift, um, my Kindle, and the title was Why Men Love Bitches. So <laughs> in this moment, I really started 
bursting out. I'm like, I, I, I couldn't stop laughing. Because, because all your stuff gets confiscated by the police. And then when they hand it back, it turns out they've been reading. They've been reading the book. <laughs> and I was like really trying to, I, I could like picture them going through it in the middle of the night while I was in the prison cell and waiting for like the pictures. And I was like, really, it was, at, it was the moment where everything was for me like, okay, you know what? They are just guys. And yes. it's really helped to, to, to get through it. And, and then my colleague, Nick Kulish, and I, we actually returned to Egypt because we had to finish our research for the first story we were working on. Right. And that's what's interesting. You, you are on the front lines of some of the most violent places in the world. And yet every couple of pages, there's something very funny, which happens. Yeah. It's like this book takes us from death and blood and violence and... Conflicts that are, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years old, all the way to there's this scene where you are with your American colleague, Michael, yes. and he is learning Arabic. Oh, yes. Oh, my God. He's yeah. with the New York Times. Is that right? Yeah, he used to be. Also okay. You are meeting with uh, Irin Zarka, and you're meeting with. Um, I'm trying to read. Okay. Yeah, two people who are doing the propaganda for Al Qaeda back then. Videos. Yeah, they were producing. These are videos. the. These are the. This is the video. These are the video guys for Al Qaeda. Yeah. You're meeting with them, and they look at Michael, and one of them says in Arabic, "Let's kidnap and kill him and make a video out of it." Yes. Next to me, Michael was smiling and nodding. Shukran, shukran. I heard him say because he had just learned how to say thank you. Yes. So everything. <laughs> Because he's learning he, Arabic, he just says, thank you, thank you, to whatever they say. Because he thought they were just saying welcome to him in Arabic. <laughs> and that's why he said, thank you, thank you. And I found myself in this situation where I, I looked at him and I looked at the two guys in front of me. And those two guys look at me and look at him and say, and ask me, wh wh why would he say thank you? We want to kill him. And I just didn't translate it to him. I decided in that moment, I cannot translate to him that I wanted to kill him because he would have freaked out. Right. And this could have escalated the situation. Instead, yes. I started discussing with them and basically also having a heated debate. Yes. Um, yeah, it was... Uh, and so you're having a debate with them about you're not going to kill my colleague. And Michael says, why are you talking so impolitely to them? Michael asked me. They are both here welcoming us and smiling. <laughs> yes. But what they're saying is we're, we should kill this guy and make a video of it. Yes. See, this, the, when they make yeah. a movie, I'm going to say it again, when they make the movie of your life, these scenes are so tense and terrifying and also, and bizarre and also really oddly funny. Y yes. I mean... Look, it all happened. And uh, I just, and I think this book, um, I wanted to explain to readers, I want to really take the reader with me into this world of jihad, but also into what it meant for us, right, as reporters, and how much it influenced our personal lives, our, um, you know, how, how difficult it is sometimes to deal with these situations, but also explain that we are also human beings, yes. all of us, right? Also those guys, the, the radicals, are human beings. But, and it's not that we agree with what they're doing and how they think, but those situations, those funny moments right. happened and they don't necessarily want to be portrayed like this. Um, right. Uh, but it's important, and that's why I'm mentioning all this. Um, so 
it's it's a it's an it's it's an honest view into what you know into this world but also into how we as journalists so how i how i as a journalist and as a woman um have been navigating i mean how i navigated yes. my 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 whole life through this you know work life uh, through through this bizarre world as well yeah and dangerous world yes and it's such an it's it's such a counterintuitive impulse because you're just telling what happened and you're humanizing people who have been so demonized and some would say rightly so it's it's almost as if in spite of all of the horrific terrorism and evil deeds there are humans these are hu it's just a very interesting thing you're doing here and it comes up and again okay i want to go to mosul yeah mosul yeah Mo mosul mm -hmm. um mosul. you're in iraq american soldiers have killed an innocent young man Anas, yeah they're denying it yes and you're confronting the soldiers and the this young man who's been killed by American soldiers, his whole family are absolutely bereft. They're distraught. Um, and you, you're, you're angry, there's injustice, you're, how do you explain what those moments are like? It's, it's not about me being angry, it's about, so look, we still worked out a story. We wrote a story because we really did crazy research i mean we went to the hospital we looked we went to the doctors we asked for the bullets that uh, which they found and the you know pulled out of the bodies of the killed ones or injured people we looked at the at the wounds we we you know really and then we went also to the place where the shooting supposedly took place and got you know the bullets out of the walls yeah. i mean because we needed to prove it because you know the the army back then said no this never took place and we proved it so I, I believed it was important to explain also to people there who had prejudice against Americans, against American media, and so on, that they all, you know, they also believed that we were hiding things on purpose, that we wouldn't be, that there is no truthful reporting. And I said, look, we are, I work for an American newspaper. We are the Washington Post. And yes, yes, we are also reporting about what is going wrong, right? Uh, what, you know, if, and we are going to do our level best to find the truth. So it was a message also to the people there who believed there would be no justice done. Um, but I felt, and I felt that this could prove or help proving to people that uh, their prejudice against the United States or the media is, is it could break the circle And um, on the other hand, I felt also that this was one of the episodes um, or one of the cases where I understood that people in the U.S. Um, must know these kind of cases create hatred. Yes, which is the very and next thing I want to ask you about, so keep yeah. going. Sorry. Yeah, and, and it is one, and the, the whole question of why do they hate us so much is one of the reasons why I actually started covering what I cover. This is the next thing in my notes because I have a thousand questions to ask you about this. Um, the war in Iraq changed me mm -hmm. because, and, and my friends, and at the test is 2003. This is, 
this is not right. This is going to be bad. This is going to haunt America for a long, long, long time. This is unjust. I mean, I, I, it, it was a defining moment in my life of this is the misuse of power <laughs> and weapons. This is not, and this is going to haunt uh, my country and going to haunt the world for a long, 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 long time. Um, and I remember with each day where they hadn't found the weapons of mass destruction. Yeah. Um, oh wait, this could be, this could actually make the world beyond unsafe. I mean, this could, and you, you bring this up again and again and again. So many of the Al-Qaeda, ISIS, Taliban, it's the, it's the, the U.S., I'm trying to think even how to say it. It is the U.S. presence in the Middle East that comes up again and again. They talk about the imperial power. They talk about intervention. How do you explain that to somebody who this is a brand new idea? I mean, for many Americans, they've only ever heard Americans go around the world and people cheer them and greet them as liberators mm -hmm. and hand them flowers and welcome them because America's the... I mean, literally American presidential candidates use this word exceptionalism. Mm, um, yeah. There's no other nation like this. How do you explain... And that's why I think this book is going to help so many people. But how do you, you're at dinner with somebody, an American, who says, wait, America isn't all good? You know what I mean? They're 101 mm. new to this. It's a really mm. long question, but how do you help people understand? So, you know, Rob, here's the, here's the thing. I also explained it to American soldiers who I met in, in Iraq. I mean, what you just described, they thought in 2003, when I was in, in Mosul, actually, I found myself speaking to a couple of young American soldiers who told me, this isn't what we signed up for. We thought we would go to this place and people would cheer and would greet us with tea and flowers, but instead we find ourselves in a situation where they hate us. And this isn't what our politicians told us, right? So... It's um, it's it's not an easy conversation to have, but I found myself in the middle of all of this because on one hand I'm trying to explain to people in the United States or in Europe, this is how the other side, this is why the other side yes. hates you. And on the other hand, I'm trying to explain to young Muslims or people who are maybe upset with the United States or with uh, the policy or whatsoever and who believe that uh, we, you know, our Western policies. I'm a Westerner. I grew up in Europe um, that we are all hypocrite. I'm trying to explain to the other side, no, no, you are generalizing. You know, this is also there are some very good people out there. And guess what? I am Muslim of um, German Arab descent and I was able to make my career in the United States. I wasn't able to do so in Europe, <laughs> but in the US. Mm -hmm. So, so I'm trying to explain to all the different sides right. why they have certain prejudice. When it comes to the hatred or to the reason why somebody or why some people choose to join Al-Qaeda or ISIS or fall for this ideology, I'm trying to walk the reader through the different chapters and explain, look, um, this is how recruiters are using for example, the war in Iraq, or for example, that, they are, that there were secret detention centers 
and that we are still until this day not that there were no consequences and this is where young people who grew up in western countries as uh, children of muslim migrants um, are telling me sometimes you know what we have the feeling that there are double standards we um, we are europeans or americans but we have the feeling that our nations actually that the life of a Muslim doesn't count as much as the life of other people. And I would ask them, why would you say so? And they would say, oh, look at 2003, the war in Iraq happened. The, people, the war happened because they pray, preached that there were weapons of mass destructions. There are no weapons of mass destructions. Um, so where are the consequences? Why didn't we see any of the decision makers put on trial? Why didn't we see any kind of like real truth commission where all of what happened is 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 out there and, and, and there are museums that are talking about this. So they um, often want clarity. And Rob, the problem is we today in our world, in our societies, we don't discuss these topics any longer. We don't have them on our radar as much, even though I tell people, if you want to understand why ISIS is so strong or became so strong in Iraq and Syria, you have to understand what happened in 2003 in Iraq, because yes. this is the outcome. Yes. And 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 we are still not dealing with the with the arguments. We are still not uh, willing to to deal with them, um, and that's the reason why recruiters are so successful because they are using this anger of 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 those young people um, and and offer them answers. They may not be the truth and and the real answers, but. They offer them answers, and the answer is they, give, they they tell them, "Look, you're no longer welcomed in the West. There is a war against Islam going on. There's the life of a Muslim is not uh, worth as much as the life of a Westerner." And here is one, two, three, four, five. Why this is why yeah. it is. So, and it's very, very challenging to sometimes explain this to people yeah. because I'm also trying to tell them I care about the United States of America, I care about Europe, and this is why I risked my life several times to go into the so-called world of jihad and talk to those guys because I want you as a reader to hear it from them. Yes. It's not my analysis, it's what they think. Yes. And so that I, I never want to be in a situation where the wife, like the wife of this firefighter who died during 9-11, or any person who lost a beloved one in a terrorist attack would come to me and say, why didn't we know, why, why didn't any person tell us, anybody tell us that there are people out there who are hating us so much? And this is why I also decided to write the book. And thank you. One, I'm so glad you said that, and that's why I think this book is going to help so many people, is for Americans who are waking up to, oh, they hate us, why? You give us... Um, You give a story after story from the lips of jihadists. Um, I don't think a lot of Americans understand that Guantanamo Bay is horrible. Not just what it is, but like um, for brand America, yeah. it's like the worst thing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That, yeah, yeah. that people can just disappear somewhere without yeah. trial and be held interminably. And that the U.S. says we're a land of democracy and human rights. And then we have something like that. 
Americans don't understand how something like that is a really, really big deal. Is that your experience? Well, my experience is also that people in the United States or in Europe don't understand that things uh, such as Guantanamo or the secret detention centers, um, all those those cases um, that are no longer discussed by our decision makers because they don't want to discuss it, right? It's far away. This, has, this happened in 2003, 2004. But these issues... Those cases are still issues for people out there. They're present They're issues. Present. Yes, absolutely. For many. The present issues for many. They are used as examples where people believe that we are hypocrites and that we have double standards. And there are still people out there who are waiting for explanation. I mean, one of the cases in the books um, that I describe is the case of Khalid al-Masri. He's a German... Next thing in my notes, by the no, way, just okay. for the record, you're okay. following my outline perfectly. <laughs> I'm sorry, I did not. <laughs> no, so that's please, what I'm saying. Just go ahead. Because I'm just like, I would ahead. like to ask this question next. Yeah. Oh, she's onto it. Yeah, no, please, please ask your question. <laughs> no, please tell about this story but, because the idea that the CIA did this. Yeah, if you could just yeah, briefly the, tell the story. German Lebanese man um, was on his way to Macedonia. Um, is gets kidnapped, uh, first arrested by the Macedonian intelligence service, then uh, handed over to the CIA, and they flew him to. Um, Afghanistan and he was held there for uh, a couple of months and uh, went through all kinds of torture uh, and then apparently somebody just realized oops we had the wrong guy and because they, of spelling because or pronunciation uh, or yeah no because actually Ramzi bin Alship who was also one of the perpetrators uh, the plotters behind you know of the 9-11 attacks um, who had been arrested in Pakistan then, um, he was held in secret detention and waterboarded and all kinds of things. And he explained during one of his interrogations that uh, Mohammed Atta and some others of the 9-11 pilots um, met apparently a person on a train in Germany whose name was Khalid al-Masri. It was a different, it was the s same name, but different, but a different person, just a different person. But that this person, Khalid al-Masri, basically convinced the 9-11 plotters not to go to, they were planning to go to Chechnya, but he uh, apparently convinced them to go to Afghanistan instead and to the training camps. Um, so, and I, and we kind of like figured out, they really believed that this was the Khalid al-Masri who Ramzi, Renal, uh, Ramzi bin Alchip mentioned. So they kidnapped this man, put him in prison or in different detention centers in Afghanistan for four months and just figure out oh we got the wrong guy and just drop him somewhere it was after torturing him after torturing him the and u.s figured out we literally picked up the wrong guy yes and then yes. just Drop, dropped him off somewhere dropped him off um uh, in albania and basically told him forget about telling any person about your story because nobody's going to believe you there's no there there are no you know there's no proof in anything so guess what he called a young journalist who actually was um uh, also in the midst of her midterm level uh, 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 because she was a f student as well and um, told her um, that he was kidnapped by the CIA and that was me. So, of course, I was kind of like, wait a second, is this like a joke? There must be some, I couldn't believe it. Um, but I worked with my colleague Don Vanatta. He was back then also New York Times. He, he left the Times as well. Um, we worked for a couple of months on this story and we were able to prove that he was telling the truth. But trust me, Rob, I mean, when the story came out, we knew if anything was wrong, if this 
anything that is wrong mm. in the story, mm. that would have been the end of our careers. And I felt for the for the first time also, I started looking around my like shoulders, and because it was one of those moments where you think this cannot be true, but it is. It cannot be true, but it is. And so, for example, Khaled Al Masri is waiting until today for an explanation, for a real explanation. He, There's never been an apology. From never the an CIA. apology. There's never been any kind of oh. um, yeah, nothing. And he was also waiting for an explanation from Germany, because we also figured out that German, um, you know, some of the German intelligence services um, circles knew about knew that. this. Yeah, and and what people in the West don't understand, which you keep bringing up so well. Is these sorts of things that feel like, well, that was just a, that's unfortunate. That's just a little thing. In other parts of the world, that is the story. That's the story, and it's still the story. This and is it just lingers in the air. Like whatever you say, that happened, and you've never acknowledged exactly. it. Exactly. And I describe it, I mean, a couple of years later, I meet this German rapper who is now one of the most wanted. Also, you know, the United States, they tried to kill him several times. Uh, I don't know how many drone strikes uh, happened. Um, his name is Dennis Kuspert, Abu Talhal Almani. He joined ISIS. But I interviewed him because I understood before he actually joined ISIS, long before ISIS uh, existed, because I saw this guy on the path of radicalization. And he was one of the people who brought up the Al-Masri case years later. But he said, look, look what they did to Al-Masri and they never apologized and it's never an explanation so on one hand they preach that they are all in for human rights they point fingers at other countries in the Middle East and so on but where's the apology where's the explanation where's whatever so they these cases that we no longer really have on our radar are on their radar and this is why I explain it in the book and this is why they're mentioned in the book yeah. and um, and I think it's um, um, you know I, Rob to me I see this this whole coverage. I mean, I cannot tell you how often I would come back home and I would sit there and say, well, is it really worth it? You're risking your life. Mm -hmm. You're like, uh, some of my friends would say, one of the reasons you're single is because you're doing this crazy job. I believe it's not, but um, it's, uh, it's a different different talk i have you see the questions you see you see the book the book why men love bitches didn't really help much <laughs> not that i really <laughs> finished that book ever in my life i did not maybe it's one of the reasons why i'm still single no but seriously it's um you would come home sometimes mm -hmm. and um you would think god you know you're doing this but because i i think if at least if some people understand or if I can wake up some people on all different sides. And this is not a book that is just written for people in the West. It's also a book that is written for people in the Muslim world because mm -hmm. I describe also a lot of what's going wrong there. Um, and I, you know, really believe that I'm, tr I'm doing what I'm doing because I want to help people understand and because I have the... The hope that maybe we can prevent more more people from getting killed just by, you know, maybe finding a way to change and to take away the the narrative from these recruiters. Um, but yeah, it's it's hard, and sometimes you get frustrated because you don't see that people actually understand that 
bombing ISIS and and destroying the so-called caliphate there is not going to really end all this because we're not taking on the real reasons. That's the problem. Okay, because I had two questions about that. Yeah. One, it's fascinating to me how many ISIS al-Qaeda Taliban that you talk to, when they explain how they became radicalized, they talk about jobs, mm -hmm. education, mm -hmm. affordable housing, mm -hmm. opportunities. They, a lot of them don't begin with my God told me or it's more, they begin with like the basics. There weren't, there wasn't infrastructure. Um, there were no options. There was no future. And it's that despair and helplessness and trapped feeling that recruiters exploit. Yes, and uh, in 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 some cases in Western in Western countries, it's um, people. So there are different dynamics. There's often in 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 Europe. I saw often also a conflict with the parents, especially the mm -hmm. father, father and son. Um, the moments where people felt they were no longer they could no longer be part of a of of the society, which yeah. is very important yeah. because it's also. I'm trying to explain to people words matter. So when politicians talk about a religious group or about a re religion in a way that they blame them for um, terrorism or, or, or link a whole religion to the reason why they are terrorists, that's dangerous because you are pushing out people, you're giving some people the impression that they can no, lo can no longer be Muslim and uh, American or European, which is dangerous. Because I believe, Rob, if you think, of, if you feel that you can be a full member of a society and you can reach like any other person and, and you have the same rights, same duties, you will do whatever you can to protect the society. The problem starts when people feel that they are not. Yeah. And this is why words matter and words of presidents matter and words of politicians matter. Oh, I have some questions for you about that. We're getting there. Mm -hmm. That's my part right here. I got written <laughs> I'm down. Sorry, I'm like, <laughs> yeah. um, one more thing about this. It was interesting to me how many of the people in ISIS that you interviewed, all well, there's like a, there was like a default answer, well, that will be taken care of with the caliphate. That yeah. will be taken care of. And the caliphate. We, that will be, and the caliphate will fix it. Yeah. The caliphate. Uh, Almost like whatever complexity or ambiguity or challenge that needed to be wrestled with, they'd say, oh, the caliphate's the answer. Yeah. How, how do you explain that to somebody who doesn't know what any of that is? Because um, I think it's a, fast, it's a fascinating thing that keeps happening in the book. Yes. Well, they... Um it's uh, so. How do I explain it to the American audience? How do I explain it to any audience? Well, I think a lot of people. ISIS is just all well, their their. What's the what's the end game? What are they trying to do? Yeah. But when they understand, oh, this is about land, yeah. soil, and an order, a, a societal order. All of a sudden, in my experience, it makes much more sense. But you explain it so much better. So actually, it's um, for to them, the caliphate is. Uh, when they say the caliphate is the answer, they believed they believed that this group, and this was in the early stages uh, of 2014 when I interviewed this ISIS commander um, uh, after the so-called caliphate was declared. I, say, I call it so-called caliphate because yeah. to me this is not a caliphate. But um, the the person, so he was somebody who grew up in Europe, um, who had a similar background, 
and who actually could have had a totally different life because he studied, he spoke several languages fluently. Um, but he also discussed foreign policy. He told me how upset he was with Iraq and all the other things and how he felt that there is a hypocrisy going on and double standards. And as a Muslim, you cannot be a full member of, um, uh, you know, you cannot, you're not accepted as a full European or full American. This was his perspective. And yes, he was somebody who would always say the caliphate uh, is the answer and the caliphate is the answer because what he believed was this caliphate would A, make, protect Muslims would be a place where re what he called real Islam would exist. Fairness, no racism, no um, uh, kind of discrimination against Muslims. And I asked him, what about like uh, all the other groups, Christians, Jewish people? And he's like, yeah, well, if they pay, uh, if they pay this, uh, this and this um, tax, they uh, could stay. And I'm like, well, it doesn't look like it. I mean, it looks more like you guys are converting them, you know, and force them into conversation and that's not how the prophet wanted it so what happened was he and I we had like we started having like a discussion and I tried to explain to him that this is not the caliphate that the prophet was talking about and your rules are not the rules that are the rules of a caliphate and so on and Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi is actually not the person who's supposed to call himself a caliphate but but we had they I think for for some of them it the caliphate was the like wonderland right all the answers would give give would protect people would actually f uh, be able to face uh, all these western evil western countries would not be hypocrite would actually uh, be strong uh, um, uh, and and be just and so they had all these like real weird fantasies about this place is going to be all that is, is, is going to fulfill all the wishes and going to be what we wanted to have in the countries we came from. Of course, it's not the case. Of course, it was also, there's also racism in, in there. I have, you know, still people inside, uh, you know, when I say uh, informants or uh, sources inside ISIS who were telling me, oh, you know, actually this group, they're really bad, uh, they don't uh, like the other group, the wives are not getting along. So yes, it's, guess what? The so-called caliphate is just also a mess. It's like everybody who moved into a commune because we're just going to share our stuff and live mm. in perfect harmony and six months later they're all like, oh, these people are so annoying. Well, I can tell you, Rob, I mean, some of the stuff that's not in the book because sometimes you have, there is a point where you have to stop. But yes. the... The, the kind of conversations I had with people who were telling me, oh my God, those wives, they are fighting the whole time. Inside ISIS. I'm like, what happened to sisterhood? <laughs> you know? yeah. Because that's what they say to the outside world. Of course, they have that propaganda. Of course, they're trying to present themselves as, oh yeah, there's no racism. There's no this. Come no join us in heaven on earth, essentially. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's almost like the banishment of complexity, of difference. Of It's just... Come it's, join us in heaven on earth, same. and everybody gets there and is like, "Oh, it's actually not exactly. Really it's not. Earth. It's not." And and I um, confronted him also in this meeting uh, with the. F I told him, "This is not your land. Who told you? I mean, like the way you treat Syrians, Iraqis. This is not your place." I mean, and he and they, but they found their own explanation for everything and excuse for everything because, and this is very important to understand, Rob. A lot of those guys they see themselves as victims. 
at the beginning, they described themselves as we have been attacked first. We as Muslims have been attacked first. We are the victims. We have been discriminated against. They um, uh, they they went into Iraq. They did this. They did that. They, you know, they use all this as a narrative in order to present themselves as the victims and say, we are not the perpetrators because we are just defending ourselves. And I then, in the meetings, very often show them, no, you are the perpetrator. You're not a victim. You're using this as an excuse to actually, uh, you know, do evil, and um, and you are radicalizing the religion. And I think it's very important to understand. They don't discuss about religion with me. They discuss about what you just mentioned. You know, the the, the, the all the things that the what they call the way they were unfairly treated, foreign policy. A lot of it is is about politics, about discrimination, and all this stuff. And then I, I turn the mirror around and I tell them, look at who you beca- who you became now. Um, but they see, and this is the dangerous thing: they see themselves as victims, and this is why they think they can justify their actions. Ah, oh, that is so helpful. Okay, you, um, your f- father's Moroccan. Yeah. Mother's Turkish. Turkish, yes. So, Turkish, descent. Moroccan, you grew up in Germany. Yes. Um, I love how you talk, as a Muslim woman, mm-hmm. you talk about Islam as peace, justice, charity, compassion, prayer. You talk about Islam as a grounding, centering force in your life that that sort of holds things together. And then all of these other interpretations to you are complete madness. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> that um, I just love how you, you just have this, like those people have all completely distorted and misread and abused the Quran and this faith that for you is a source of life and empowerment. And building bridges. And building bridges. And... and for you, you as a, a modern European feminist, mm-hmm. that is not for you at all at odds with your Muslim faith. No, it's not. It, it's also, you know, Rob, the, the, I when I lived for three and a half years in Morocco. The first, uh, as, a, as a little girl, um, the first real strong female figure and I call her a feminist I met in my life was my grandmother. Grandma, I I underlined more things about your grandma. I was like, I need to do a whole episode on her grandma. <laughs> grandma was really a tough cookie and um, <laughs> she um, um, may God bless her soul, she was um, she was uh, divorced three times. She divorced her husband, I mean in Morocco. Uh, that's also um not something that uh, people would really believe is possible in a Muslim country, but in Morocco, it she was she brought up her kids on her own, and when I lived with her, um, I saw her ar- arguing with people. She would call, um, you know, on people who were doing wrong things, and she would also teach me about Islam. I went to Quran school there, and. And we had Jewish neighbors, and then we would exchange food and meals with them. My first best friend was a Jewish girl. So to me, you know, the the Islam that I was taught is is, and I believe is 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 what Islam is is to 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 really 
have you know show forgiveness uh, but also look at what we have in common as mm -hmm. religions and as people and mm -hmm. um and this is the spirit also my parents brought me up in so when we when i grew up my uh, we had friends of all kinds of different religious backgrounds um, my father had a co-worker who was a gay uh, man from scotland and um and it was all like let's look at what we have in common let's sit together um you know talk about the similar similarities when my parents brought me back to to germany um i attended kindergarten um, i went to christian kindergarten and to a christian after school daycare and i played virgin mary as well and my mom or my parents would explain to me okay you know Christians believe that Jesus was the son of God. We as Muslims believe he was a prophet and you know and we want you to also learn about this. It's not our religion but it's we have so many things in common and look at this prophet and that prophet. Look at Abraham being, you know, uh, the forefather of Jewish and Muslims and so we are cousins. You know, these kind of things um is is how I grew up. That's the spirit I grew up in. And um and I was to me i've had to learn a lot after 9-11 i went found myself in a in a <laughs> in a situation where i was confronted with an interpretation or with with an ideology that i later understood my parents always tried to keep away from us oh and like because fundamentalist, fundamentalist violent violence interpretations of the text yes your parents didn't even want you to know that that existed because it was so out there they, they and crazy yeah they didn't they, they always pushed away people who turned that way from us and i i, I mentioned this one case my father had another co-worker i mean uh, somebody um who was from pakistan who used to party with them uh, with him and uncle tommy the the gay scott man from scotland um and they used to hang out and so on and then at some stage this friend friend of my father went to pakistan and it was during the time when guess what um the uh, so-called Mujahideen movement was uh, fighting against uh, the godless um, Soviets, Soviets right. which was also supported, don't forget that, by different countries, including the United States, Great Britain, and so on. Um, they were fighting a so-called jihad, and um, it was all accepted. And people were recruited in Europe, even in the United States, to go and fight, right? Um, and this guy... Um, Latif was his name. He um, he came back from Pakistan, and I saw him. I was this little girl, and I opened the door, and I saw this man, totally changed in different clothes, long beard. Not he didn't want to shake the hand of my mom any longer, and my father was like, "What is going on here?" And then he tried to tell my. He, he actually told my dad. You have to tell. You have to tell your wife and you, your daughters. They have to start wearing hijab, and you should actually think about fighting jihad. And you have to stop being friends with the gay man from Scotland. And this was the moment where my father actually said, "You are out of here. You're no longer welcome to this house. We are friends. You know, Tom is our friend, and he stays our friend. And I, this is my house, and this is my wife, and this are my." children i will not allow you to who are you to tell them how to you know to wear what to wear and how to dress because this is not the islam we learned in morocco and so my parents always try to keep people like this away from us and i ended up working in this world yeah it's fa oh it's so fascinating um during the presidential election 
we had one last what, last year. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> a very unforgettable one. Yeah. We're, yes, we're we're still trying to recover. Um, there was this accusation by a number of Republican candidates that this of President Obama. We currently have a. It was seen as a very negative thing from their perspective. We have a we have a president who will not say the words radical Islamic terrorism. Remember that? That was like a big thing. He won't say that. In my ignorance, tell me how you hear that criticism or debate or. I, you know, it's one of those moments where I'm thinking, what are we discussing here? Yeah. You know, really, because uh, it's uh, instead of discussing about how can we, what can we all do in order to stop any kind of radicalization from happening <laughs> we are discussing about he doesn't say this or that or whatever mm -hmm. um, it's not helpful and I mean I'm sorry to tell you radicalization today is happening on so many levels I mean just look at what I mean the the the, the, the increasing um, I mean we see all those protests from right-wing extremists and who are as dangerous as the other extremists and but we are not really discussing it the way we should discuss it and don't get me wrong yeah. i know what i'm talking about my last book was um i which i co-authored was about a nazi war criminal so i know how also this kind of extremism and radicalization can um is you know how how this ideology works and how similar the the uh, sometimes the dynamics are um and that's why you know what happened in charlottesville and other places um is um is is a is a is a big disaster and we should actually all talk about what can you know what is happening to our countries and in this world and and this um and how can we what can we do as societies to um to stop this from happening how can we make sure that those people who want to build bridges are not gonna, you know, that they that we will still be strong enough to um, to fight against those who want to divide us, and so it's yes, words matter mm -hmm. definitely. Um, and if we talk about this kind of extremism, then we also have to name the other kind of extremism and not uh, whitewash it or uh, or try to say oh yeah you know this one is less uh, dangerous than the other one no excuse me it's all dangerous it's all dangerous okay i haven't asked you i have so many more questions but i just have one more thing i want to ask you about sure there we in this book we get from you i feel like we get this beautiful uh I'm trying to think how to say it. Insight into what it means to be a journalist. Yeah. Um, and I, I feel like the threads are early in your life that this is what you're here to do. It feels like a very holy, sacred thing to me, your, your path. Mm -hmm. um, she's here to do this, to tell these stories and to shine the light in places where it needs to be shown um, and to tell the stories that need to be told. Um, but there's also the the craft and the trade, the vocation of journalism, which is like sources. Mm -hmm. And is this credible? And do we have corroboration? And what goes into like ethics? 
Yeah. Um, and it, it, I would love for you to give your perspective. It's almost like with the internet, anybody could write stuff. Yeah. So we had this wonderful explosion of, awesome, now we can hear from all these people. Uh, great, so-and-so is saying this, so-and-so. But some of it's literally, it, it, well, I hate to say this, but it's fake news. <laughs> um, and in this yeah. book, we see you like stick to the journalistic ideal, which is like the lifeblood of any civilization in many ways mm-hmm. or society. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do you, when the, let's say there was a president of the United States who with really big problems facing us continued to take valuable time and energy. Let's just imagine a world to go after journalists. Yeah. That's really, really, really destructive. I don't even think people realize how bad that is for the very fabric of our life together. So is that a, that's my absolutely that's not even a question, but no, it's a you question. You nailed it. No, 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 no. You nailed it. I mean, look, um, I also talk about the the problem with what I what some people call citizen journalists or journalism because. Um, and it is also interesting to look at these perspectives, but again, those are perspectives. This is not um, this is not impartial reporting, and this is I think a lot of people no longer really understand that um, the difference, right? Somebody sitting somewhere and putting out his or her perspective um, is not the kind of reporting I'm doing because. I, when I when you read my articles, that's not my perspective. It's I'm basically giving the reader an insight into the situation and into how all the different sides are thinking and how I you know and basically also challenging different sides and and confronting them with with the findings and the facts and what is what people some people told me after reading this I was told to come alone is they did not realize how much of an effort it is to get Absolutely. this information. Absolutely. How many days you sometimes have to be on the ground and um, how what kind of difficult meetings you have to go through in order to get the piece of, of truth. Um, uh, I mean, I, I also explain how we uncovered the identity of Jihadi John um, and how many days and how many travels, I mean, trips and oh. meetings I had to go yeah. through. So it's, and this is, it's important. I was inspired by the movie All the President's Man, actually, to then decide I want to become a journalist. I was a teenager. But yeah, you, you're right. I mean, I also remembered how my grandparents, and especially my, my grandfather would tell me um, the, the, most imp- like the most powerful people from his perspective were the, the people who could write down stories. And, 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 uh, and uh, because he felt that nobody would knew would learn about their perspective of history and uh, and only the perspective of 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 like the French in this case um, uh, because he was in the resistant movement against the French um, uh, and uh, and this kind of like stick to me as a little child but then all the president's man when I watched this it was like wow yes they can change something and look at this and how they work and and this is why i wanted to become a journalist and it's important it's important for all of us and it's important especially for readers like or for people like the wife of the firefighter who died during 9-11 to have this kind of journalism because 
it it explains it gives a a fair insight into that's also why I wrote this book into a world that usually we wouldn't get access to and it might help to change things but it's very important to have journalism and this is why I'm also you know as as difficult as it is with uh, this president or politicians who call us uh, call us all, all kinds of things we are still out there and we will still keep doing what we're doing because we believe we might help yes you know we might help uh, our democracies our uh, the population to 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 see what the reality is on the ground and not what the reality the wishful thinking and reality of some people is or how they would want to see reality no we show you the reality as it is whether we like it or not but it's the it's the truth that only can help us um to maybe find ways to change and really prevent also more attacks from happening yes Oh, that is oh, so beautiful. You, you think about the people now who, why do you think that? Well, because my brother-in-law sent me a link on Facebook. Well, where'd the link come from? Uh, he got it from a coworker. Where'd the coworker get it? Yeah. Oh, it's from a blog. What's the blog? Oh, it's actually somebody on their laptop in, in their kitchen who just typed up a couple of things based on a picture that they were sent by somebody. <laughs> it's it, And now all of a sudden... It's actually affecting the way somebody is interpreting events. But then in your book, it's like we took a train, then we took an airplane, then we stayed up all night, then we waited for three days for a phone call, <laughs> then we brought a colleague along, we recorded it to make sure the transcript matched yeah. the... I mean, you are showing us... It's, it's, it's like you are showing us that the, the, there is cost involved in the truth. There is cost involved, and um, of course, I mean, it is. It is, and I'm saying this. Uh, I mean, it is not easy, and I'm grateful that I can that I work for a, a paper like the the Washington Post, where I have editors who understand um, how difficult it is to to get yes. this kind of information, how much time it takes, and yes. how much effort. Um, but it's important, and it's it's um, it's this kind of. Um, the costs are not only financially, but it costs... Uh, yeah. I mean, we risk sometimes our lives for this information. And yeah. I think a lot of, of people, I, I, when they email me uh, or they send messages or feedback, um, they, say, they say, we had no idea. Actually, when we read today, when we read such articles, we, under we understand much better yeah. what it means for you as a reporter, as a, as a female reporter, as a reporter. Yeah. And, and the other beautiful thing about about this um, also is Rob for people to understand that it's a Muslim woman who goes out there and who actually confronts those people who are uh, using this ideology and who are, have this interpretation of Islam which is so different from her own upbringing um, that is the Muslim woman who discovered or unmasked Jihadi John, it's also a learning curve. It's a learning lear curve. Yes, because very, you know, for for all those who believe that um, you know uh, uh, it's Islam that is uh, preaching this, and uh, and to see that it's actually a 
female Muslim reporter who does this kind of stuff in order to, who risks her life, who has been threatened also by such groups because she does the reporting she do, she do, she does. And um, it's, it's, it's an important message as well we, because, you know, um, yes, uh, I'm confronting those guys and I'm doing it because uh, I'm a reporter yeah. and because it's yeah. my job. But um, I think it's also a good moment for people to to understand, um, you know, there not every Muslim or not every person who calls him or herself a Muslim is the same. Yeah. Yeah, and the majority of people out there, they're not like ISIS, and they uh, and there's people out there who really um, are risking their lives in trying to explain to explain this and 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 who are um trying through their the work whether it's in my case the reporting or other things to actually also confront those who are yeah terrorists well thank you for what you do it's so inspiring and so needed and so necessary and thank you it's just well, great It's just great. How can people? How can people? The book is called "I Was Told to Come Alone." How can people get a hold of you or find out more about other books? I now have to read the book about the eternal the Nazi. Nazi living in Germany, living in, in Egypt. Egypt in the nineties. Yeah. Ugh, my word! I'm reading. I have to do tonight <laughs> now. Um, where else can people find more about your work? Washington Post. Uh, Washington Post. Yeah, on uh, WashingtonPost.com. Definitely, there's um, uh, a lot of articles there, um, and I have a website um, for the book. Um, I was told to come alone. Com. Um, there's a web, a Facebook site, and uh, yes, and well, I I, I hope that uh, people will understand, um, and it's an important message from me to also readers. Um, This is not a clash of civilizations because, first of all, civilized people don't clash. Um, but secondly, civilized people don't clash. Civilized people don't clash. Oh, that okay? is such a good line. But that's so also, good. I think truly that this is we are facing a situation where people, those of us who want to build bridges, are um, you know that we are basically confronted with people who want to just destroy them, and it doesn't matter if it's right-wing movements, jihadist, so-called jihadist movements or whatsoever. This is really what I believe. And and I hope that's also one of the messages, you know, this book conveys. Oh, I seriously, I feel like I'm through my intro of questions. But <laughs> we'll wrap it up here. Thanks Thank so much. Thank you so much. What an honor. Thank you. Grace and peace, friends. <laughs>